I fully recognize I'm not a twin brother of Cal Reed, for whom I have the very highest esteem and regard. By the way, this assembly has the privilege given by Almighty God himself to give us a pastor who is so committed to the word in his life, in his preaching, his example to us. We can be thankful for that. My encouragement today is don't ever, ever let him go. Hang on to him with all you've got and uh, soak up the greatness and the goodness of the hand of Almighty God as he explains that to us. Turn in your Bibles with me, please, to John chapter 11. The theme of the book of John, as I see it, is that John is presenting Jesus, God in flesh. There is uh, a pattern that follows throughout this gospel that comes in the form of discourses. And in some cases, the Lord will give a discourse on some aspect of his nature, of his reason for coming to this earth, and then in other times, he will do a miracle to substantiate or clarify that particular discourse. For example, chapter 3, Jesus presents himself as eternal life. Chapter 4, Jesus in discourse presents himself as the prophet, the one whom the Samaritan woman wondered, uh, are, are you the, the true prophet? And uh, she wanted a debate. Uh, do we worship in this mountain or do we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus moved her away from the debate and made this declaration. And by example, I am the living water. Hence, I am the prophet of whom Moses spoke. Then we move to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we see here that Jesus is giving a discourse as to his own deity. And where the Old Testament law requires two or three witnesses to any claim that is made, Jesus Christ goes to the extent of providing five witnesses. He didn't have to do that, but he went above and beyond what the law itself required. And so first of all, God, John the Baptist himself is going to verify this is the Son of God. Then we see that the works that Jesus Christ does verify the fact this is God in flesh. Then we see the Father giving verification. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Twice, first in the baptism of Jesus Christ given to us in Matthew chapter 3 and also in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3 where we see these words, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then we move to chapter 6. Jesus presents himself. Oh, excuse me, there are two other witnesses. Uh, scripture itself is witness. And then the revered prophet Moses gives witness to the fact this is the prophet. Hence, this is God himself. Then chapter 6, Jesus presents himself by way of discourse. I am the bread of life. Chapter 7, again, I am the living water. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Chapter 9, he goes into the working of a miracle. So he takes a man who was blind from birth and makes him seeing again. Consequently, I'm the light of the world. Now look at this man here. See? He has light now. He sees. Why? Because I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. Uh, chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Yeah, well, we, we know that. We've heard of that. 
Martha had heard of that. I know that you will raise our brother, she said later on in this chapter. Mary comes along, and she gives witness to that too. But Jesus wanted to stretch their faith enough to say, stop looking here at simply the results of what's happening from my hand. I want you to gaze steadfastly at me because it's not just that I give life. I am the resurrection and the life. Later on, Jesus comforts his disciples in the discourse, chapter 14 and chapter 16, on the Holy Spirit of God that he would send as he leaves this earth. And then in chapter 15, I am the vine. And by the time we get done, we're left with only one conclusion. If all the miracles and the works of Jesus Christ are written down, the world could not contain the books. There are many that he did that are not recorded here, but these are written so that you may believe that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. That establishes a little bit of a context for where we are this morning as Jesus comes along and puts a veil across their eyes, so to speak, and steps back, so to speak, and makes this revelation of himself. You can trust me when nothing makes sense. And so his disciples came to him and said, Your friend Lazarus is ill. The text tells us this was the illness with which he would die. And Jesus sat down and did not go. That doesn't make sense. He's our loving Lord. He's our compassionate Lord. Doesn't make sense. Then the disciples turn around and come back to him and said, Now he's dead. Jesus said, now we're going. That doesn't make sense. Is there anything in your life that doesn't make sense? Is there anything in our understanding that doesn't come together? What do we have left? Jesus. That's all we need. Trusting Jesus when nothing makes sense. The premise of our message this morning is simply this, that if Jesus really is Lord of all, it only makes sense to follow him. If Jesus really is Lord of all, it only makes sense for us to follow him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, let us lean on God with all our weight. Let us throw ourselves on his faithfulness as we do on our beds, bringing all our weariness to his dear rest. If Christ were standing on this platform and you saw his pierced hands and the wound in his side, you would be ready to fall down and worship him. You can worship him better still by trusting in his absence. Wow. What a God. As we get into our text, we're going to look at it from three standpoints. Number one, we're going to talk about perplexity of the finite. We're finite. We're creatures. We worship the infinite, almighty God. 
who has no beginning and no ending. Are we perplexed in our finitude? Secondly, we're going to consider this. We're going to note the purpose of the infinite. God really does have it all together. He really is sovereign. He really is in control. What do you think of that? Thirdly, we will note the persistence of the faithful. How can I persist? How can I trust Him? Because He has been persistent in my salvation. He designed it. He carried it out. He's working in me every single day as His own child, redeemed, reconciled, forgiven, cleansed, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And then there's coming a day that it'll all be wrapped up and we will shed off this coil of flesh and we'll be with our Lord without interruption, without sin for the rest of eternity. Before we look at our text, we need to seek the face of our God with a sense of desperation. Let's go to Him. Father, we take delight in Your presence. You have saved us. You are saving us every day in this glorious work of sanctification by grace alone, through faith alone. And there's coming a day when You will consummate that glorious salvation, and even our bodies will be redeemed, and the curse will be removed, and we will stand unhindered in your presence forever. Now, Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Note with me, first of all, please, the perplexity of the finite. Three observations. Here they are. Number one, why does God allow affliction? Why does he do that? Chuck Swindoll wrote a book years ago called Killing Giants, Pulling Thorns. He said, pain humbles the proud. It softens the stubborn. It melts the hard Silently and relentlessly, it wins battles deep within the lonely soul. The heart alone knows its own sorrow, and not another person can fully share in it. Pain operates alone. It needs no assistance. It communicates its own message, whether to statesman or servant, preacher or prodigal, mother or child. By staying, it refuses to be ignored. By hurting, it reduces its victim to profound depths of anguish. And if that anguishing point the sufferer either submits and learns, develops maturity and character, or resists and becomes embittered, swamped by self-pity, smothered by self-will. I have tried and I cannot find either in Scripture or history 
a strong-willed individual whom God used greatly until he allowed them to be hurt deeply. It was just such a person who wrote the following words. Listen to this. Pain knocked upon my door and said that she had come to stay. And though I would not welcome her, but bade her go away, she entered in like my own shade. She followed after me. And from her stabbing, stinging sword, no moment was I free. And then one day, another knock, most gently at my door. I cried, no, pain is living here. There's not room for more. And then I heard his tender voice. Tis I, be not afraid. And from the day he entered in, the difference it has made. Trusting Jesus when nothing makes sense. Observation number two. Why doesn't God respond sooner? Two examples I have in Scripture for this. One is in the Old Testament. One is the New Testament. Have you turn, please, to the book of uh, Exodus, chapter 23, verse 23. The book of Exodus, chapter 23. We'll begin with verse 23 and read through verse 30. <coughs> Thanks for the water, Jack. This really helps. That's not part of my sermon. Exodus 23, verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw them into confusion, throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hittites, Canaanites, and the uh, Hivites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. One year. We have to live with these critters for a whole year? No, longer than that. Not in one year will I do this. Why in the world not? Why doesn't God respond sooner? From before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you, little by little. I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inheritance of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Little by little, because if you enter now, and if I give you the strength to wipe out all these people, these idolaters, these people that are killing their own children for the sake of worshiping gods that did not exist, the wild beasts are going to wipe you out. 
the land won't be ready for you yet. So it's going to be a while, little by little. But let it be known, little by little. And sometimes Jesus Christ comes to us and he says this, when nothing makes sense, I will cause it to make sense little by little. I'll give you glimpses of truth. I'll let you see some stuff, but I'm not going to lay it all out yet. You're not ready for that. And if I do that, it will bring harm to you, so little by little. But please keep in mind, it's God who is speaking, and so would Jesus. Acts chapter 18. Turn please to verse 5. Acts chapter 18, verse 5. I'd like to read through verse 11. Whenever we teach a Sunday school class or have an opportunity to speak on some level, isn't it amazing how the pages of God's Word kind of stick together when we want them to move faster? This is really not directly related to the sermon all, but little by little, the Lord works it out. Acts chapter 18, beginning with verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent from now on. I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. I gave them the word, and some responded, let's go to the next city. Oh, no. Little by little. And so for a year and a half, He sat down, little by little, and revealed the Lord Jesus Christ to them. Little by little, because Jesus said, I have many elect in this city. What an amazing God we serve. Observation number three. When will this end? And where is God when I need him? You know, it's at this juncture that I would prefer to change the level of questioning. When my beloved father died at 56, the godliest man I've ever met to this day was my dad. Never mention an inappropriate word, and I'm not speaking about a curse word, a swear word. I saw my dad, I was growing up with him. I saw him hit his thumb with a hammer. That's when what's inside comes outside rather quickly, rather disturbingly. 
God had his heart. And then my dad died, totally unexpectedly. My sisters had a hard time getting over that. I love my sisters, but they've struggled with faith for many years now. And the question they raise is, why did God take, take dad? Why did he die now? I said, can we change the question? How is it that God in his bountiful grace and mercy has blessed us all these years with such a godly man who loved us with all his heart? Let's change the question and raise the more proper question than the one, poor me, complain, complain, murmur, murmur. You know what that word murmur, murmur means? (laughs) It's a word that has been coined to copy an expressed sentiment of complaint. So that when we murmur, or complain with one another, it sounds like this, murmur, 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 hence the word murmur. (laughs) We don't want to be known as murmurers. Is there such a word? I guess there is such a word. We don't want to be complainers. Psalm 40, verse 1. Love this psalm. Actually, there's 31,173 of these passages that are, are great passages that should and can be loved. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud as those who go astray after a lie. Secondly, this morning, consider with me the purpose of the infinite. The purpose of the infinite. Two observations. Observation number one. To show himself completely adequate. That's his purpose. To show himself completely adequate. My beloved disciples, I'm here. I'm God in flesh. There's no one else. There's nothing else. You're alone. You're needy. You're inadequate. You don't have it put together. But I'm here. (laughs) I'm here. Jesus is with his people. And as we learned in Sunday school this morning, Jesus is in his people by the Holy Spirit. What else do we need? He's our strength. He's our sufficiency. He's our satisfaction. Is there anyone here that has ever heard of the name Charles Haddon Spurgeon? (laughs) Is there anyone here who hasn't heard his name? This is rhetorical. I know Pastor Reed has quoted from Spurgeon. I know that. 
when I met Pastor Reed over 20 years ago now, at that time he had already read 13 distinct biographies of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. That was over 20 years ago. I don't know if there are many more biographies of Spurgeon or not that Cal has not read. Excuse me, Pastor Cal has not read. But if he hasn't, he will. On a certain Saturday evening, C.H. Spurgeon found himself quite unable to get any light upon the text from which he believed he ought to preach on the following morning. Commentaries were consulted, but in vain, and his wife could not help him. She said, He sat up very late and was utterly worn out and dispirited. He has struggled with gout all his life, severe gout, and emotional depression. For all his efforts to get at the heart of the text were unavailing. I advised him to retire to rest and soothe him by suggesting that if he would try to sleep then, he would probably in the morning feel quite refreshed and able to study the better purpose. If I go to sleep now, wifey, I guess that's what you say when you're in London, England, will you make me wake very early so that I may have plenty of time to prepare with my loving assurance that I would watch the time for him and call him soon enough. He was satisfied, and like a trusting child, he laid his head upon the pillow and slept soundly and sweetly at once. By and by, a wonderful thing happened. During the first dawning hours of the Sabbath, I heard him talking in his sleep and roused myself to listen attentively Soon I realized that he was going over the subject of the verse which had been so obscure to him and was giving a clear and distinct exposition of its meaning with much force and freshness. I set myself with almost trembling joy to understand and follow all that he was saying, for I knew that if I could but seize and remember the salient points of the discourse, he would have no difficulty in developing and enlarging upon them. Spurgeon had studied all week for his sermons on Sunday. And by reading through anywhere from 50 to 70 different commentaries on one passage, then when it came time to assemble all of this information, he did it from memory, and he did it in a couple of hours on a Saturday night. That was his practice. Never a preacher had a more eager and anxious hearer. What if I should let the precious words slip? I had no means at hand of taking note. So like Nehemiah, I prayed to the God of heaven and asked that I might receive and retain the thoughts which he had given to a servant in his sleep and which were so singularly entrusted to my keeping. As I lay repeating over and over again the chief points I wish to remember, my happiness was very great in anticipation of his surprise and delight on awaking. But I had kept vigil so long, cherishing my joy that I must have been overcome with slumber just when the usual time for rising came. For he awoke with a frightened heart and seeing the telltale clock said, Oh, wifey, you said you would wake me very early. And now look at the time. Oh, why did you let me sleep? What shall I do? What shall I do? Listen, beloved, I answered. And I told him all I had heard. Why, that's just what I wanted, he exclaimed. That is the true explanation of the whole verse. And you say I preach it in my sleep? It's wonderful. 
He repeated again and again, and we both praise the Lord for so remarkable a manifestation of his power and his love. There's purpose in what the infinite almighty God does. And sometimes, as with the poet William Cowper, God does move in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Observation number two. Why does he do these things? What's his purpose? Here it is, to stretch, enhance, and encourage our faith. That's why he does it. That's not Al Vivona's guess. That's what God has revealed in his word. He is always stretching us. He is already enhancing his ministry to the world through us and encouraging us as his servants by sometimes saying, I'm not going just now and raise my friend from, or make him well. And by saying, well, he's dead, it's time to go now. But by coming to us and saying, I have far greater purpose in all of this, you're going to see the glory of God manifested. So wait and watch and receive from his hand. You know the passage of James chapter 1, verse 2 through 8. Count it all joy, brothers, when you enter into various testings or trials of your faith, knowing that faith produces, in the end, steadfastness, patience. A lot of times we separate verse 5 from the context. We say, well, if a man wants wisdom, all he has to do is go to God on the basis of that passage and ask for wisdom, and God will grant it in great measure and will not upbraid us for it. But that passage is in the context of trial. Well, what do I do with this trial? What does it mean? How do I get through this? Let him come to God and seek after wisdom. And God will grant it freely without chiding us for it. C.S. Lewis said, Now faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. For moods will change. Whatever view your reason takes, I know that by experience, now that I'm a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. This rebellion of your moods against your real self is going to come anyway. That's why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off. You can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Well, I'm not feeling well today. i got a bellyache. God must have forgotten me. How ridiculous is that? Lastly, Sometimes people love to hear the word, lastly. Note the persistence of the faithful. Three observations. The persistence of the faithful. 
Observation number one. I love this. Brothers and sisters, stay where Jesus is. Just stay where Jesus is. Don't go to Bethany on your own. Don't stay in Jerusalem on your own. Stay where Jesus is. How do I do that? By faith. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Well, what do I do now? Just twiddle my thumbs. No! Bury myself in the book. Cling to it. Let us saturate our minds and our hearts. I've already shared this in a very general way. I'll share it again in a very general way. You beloved brothers and sisters, to Sandy and I, give us healing salve every time we're with you. And every time we think of you and pray for you, you have and are ministering to our spirits, and we are eternally grateful. Don't stop. Listen to the theology of Martin Luther, John Calvin. Oh, not the same guy. John, Calvin, and Martin Luther. Even on a good day, the average Christian is wicked. You ever struggle with that? <laughs> The proper answer that's most realistic is always. The believer, however, does not await a verdict in the future. He reminds himself of the verdict already declared. What's the verdict? That God has declared through the work of Jesus on the cross. Not guilty. Even more than not guilty, the believer is regarded by God as one who has perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. Not our own righteousness. We've been studying Matthew too long to come up with some other notion. But his righteousness is imputed to our account because Christ's obedience is imputed or credited to him or her. And to enjoy this promise, the believer does not have to meet certain criteria for growth and grace. Before he can be confident in this promise, he need not clean up his act. More than this, he knows he can't clean up his act to the degree that he can make enough progress to be accepted or approved by sanctification. We need, we need... Jesus. Trusting Jesus when nothing makes sense. Second observation. This is next to the last last. Move at Jesus' pace. Stay with Jesus. Move at his pace. Don't run ahead of him. Don't lag behind him. Move at his pace. My dad was in World War II. He went in, I think, at 17. You can get under the wire if you say certain things. That was before he was a believer. 
Didn't see much action. But whenever I tried to walk downtown from our house in a very small village in upstate New York, so small we didn't even have a street light. I think we had a couple of stop signs once or one, you know, here or there. Kind of hard to find them. But trying to keep up with Dad was something else. He had learned how to double step. He was a little shorter than I, maybe two or three inches. Walking down the side, this would be a cinch. My shorter dad, I'm a little bit taller. This would be a cinch. Started out. Dad's, you know, I'm walking along like this. Dad's doing this. <laughs> Effortlessly. It was awfully hard to keep up with him. Don't try to outrun Jesus. Don't lag behind him. Don't just get with the program. Stay with the person. Move at Jesus' pace. There's a hymn in the Bath Collect. I showed our beloved pastor, Heller, this morning a little hymn book I brought with me, published in 1847. That hymn book is this tall, and it's this wide, and it's this thick. Has 1,300 hymns in it. And if you don't believe me, check with him. He'll show you. Bring your grandmother's uh, magnifying glass like I use so that you can see the, the things. This comes out of that hymn book. Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, though pressed by every foe, that will not tremble on the brink of any earthly woe, that will not murmur nor complain beneath the chastening rod, but in the hour of grief or pain, will lean upon its God. A faith that shines more bright and clear when tempests rage without, that when in danger knows no fear, in darkness feels no doubt, that bears unmoved the world's dread frown, nor heeds its scornful smile, that seas of trouble cannot drown, nor Satan's arts beguile. A faith that keeps the narrow way till life's last hour is fled, and with the pure and heavenly ray lights up a dying bed. Lord, give us such a faith as this, and then whate'er may come, we'll taste, even here, the hallowed bliss of an eternal home. This is observation last. Fulfill our unique station in life. Wherever God has designed and purposed you to be, stay there and fulfill it. And in that sense, there is no higher or lower position on earth than being a bond slave of Jesus Christ. The freest position a created human being could ever be in. A bond slave of Jesus Christ. In his preaching, Alexander White magnified the vileness of sin and the graciousness of Christ. In his study of sanctification, the pure in heart, William Sangster told of an evangelist who came to Edinburgh and criticized the ministers. A friend told White, the evangelist said last night that Dr. Hood Wilson was not a converted man. White jumped from his chair. That rascal, he cried. Dr. Wilson is a converted man. Then his friend reported 
that the evangelist also said that White was not converted. At that, White stopped short, sat down, put his face in his hands, and was silent for a long time. Then he said to the visitor, Leave me, friend. Leave me. I must examine my own heart. If Jesus is Lord of all, it only makes sense to follow him. Follow Jesus. Let's pray.